If you enjoy our content and think this is important material, the best compliment you can pay is by sharing this with your friends and family. This helps us out a lot. Also, if you enjoyed today's program, please like, comment, share, and subscribe to this podcast. We would love to hear from you. Truth in My Days podcast is sponsored by the Truth in My Days ministry. Welcome to the Truth in My Days podcast, where we defend the Word of God against the challenges of men. Hello all. Today, we have Sonia interviewing John about literary dependence and the synoptic problem. This is looking at the process by which the Gospel authors went about writing the Gospel books. Given that the Gospel books are so similar, particularly Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it raises the questions such as, do they copy each other? Are the similarities due to the divine inspiration from the Holy Spirit? What do the evangelical scholars say about this? Is there something wrong with their approach? John will be looking to answer these questions and more. We're continuing from the previous episode today. We hope you enjoy. But again, back to this, you understand how, how these three factors, literary dependence, mark and priority, critical text work together to get rid of the resurrection. Now, the idea that Mark would finish his account at the, with the women fleeing from the tomb doesn't make any sense. And so at first the story was, well, the original ending of Mark was lost, you see. The original ending of Mark, we don't know what the original ending was. But then scholarship switched once once people accepted Mark and Purry to say that, yeah, actually Mark did end there. He had no resurrection. Now you can see how that would very, very much undercut the credibility of the resurrection account. There you go. And then the chutzpah that's added on top of this, because they would say, if you accept modern mainstream textual criticism, you have to accept Mark and priority because it's based on the same text critical arguments. So basically based on the same two bad manuscripts, they mean. And the same rules uh, of textual criticism, grease box canons, and they were done you know, good, good, almost 100 years earlier than this time. They said, for example, uh, remember, they, his rules that scribes would change the text to improve it. Well, look, Matthew is much smoother Greek than Mark. So see, he obviously changed it. He has to be secondary. Why, why would Mark copy Matthew and rough up the Greek? <laughs> that doesn't make sense. But if Matthew copied then, of course, you would make the Greek smoother. So Matthew has to be secondary. This is the sort of supposed text-critical arguments they brought up. But what if neither copied, as the evidence indicates? There was no literary dependence. Why, why is Matthew's Greek smoother than Mark's? Because Matthew was a professional tax collector. He was very literate. He, he had a better command of literary Greek than Mark did. So these are the things that add together. Now, once they've decided on... Mark and party, they then have to try to muster evidence after the fact for this. Uh, and, and they went back to what, what those, those two people had said earlier about low Christology. I think it's McDowell who, who cites this, for example, that in the book of Mark, kurios, the Greek word for Lord, it's also the word that's used in the Septuagint when it's translating the Old Testament when it comes across the, the personal name of God, the tetragrammaton, the, the yod He vav He, 
pronounced Yehua or Yahweh, nobody knows for sure. The Greek translators wrote this Greek word kurios, Lord, and that was picked up by the New Testament writers. And this is why you see this word when, when both in the Hebrew and in the Greek, where you have Yehua in the original, you'll see Lord in your English translation, Lord all in big block capitals. And where you have kurios in the New Testament, where it's quoting Old Testament passages, Old Testament passages in which Yehua appears in the Hebrew, you see Lord there in block caps as well. But this is why they use Lord in place of God's personal name. And they would say that, well, if you look at Mark, he uses this word kurios. He applies it to Jesus only once in the entire book. Whereas Matthew does it 19 times. Luke does it 16 times. So you see how the picture of Jesus is being elevated, going from Mark to Matthew. Okay, well, what, what is the alternate term that the, to kurios that the other writer is using? Well, he doesn't. He, just, he might use rabbi, or he just might not give a, a designation, a title for Jesus in, in those passages. The problem with this argument is if you're saying that Mark wrote first, Matthew copied, and Matthew added all these uses of kurios or changed them to kurios in order to elevate the picture of Jesus, you'd have to ask yourself, well, why in that case does Matthew use the same term nine times to apply to ordinary people, not to Jesus at all? Context? Wouldn't that be completely undercutting the argument? If, if Matthew is adding all these kurioses because he wants to show that Jesus especially, be very careful not to apply it to ordinary people, but he does. Well, could it be that the context would make it obvious that those people are just like regular lords? Well, that's how we know that he's applying it to ordinary people. The context is what tells us that. But if Matthew's trying to elevate the picture of Jesus by calling him Lord, by using kurios, he would avoid using it for ordinary people. Because he's trying to, according to this theory, he's trying to elevate the picture of Jesus. Well, what else is he going to call those other masters? He just doesn't have to use a word at all. Right? So he comes and says, oh, master, do this for me. You could just have the man come and say, please do this for me. Right? He wouldn't have to use the term at all. But he does use it because they did use it because he's not putting it in to elevate the picture of Jesus. And this is an example of how context is key. If all you hear is Mark uses kurios only once applied to Jesus and Matthew uses it 19 times, they may say, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Look, Matthew's elevating the picture of Jesus by use of this term. If you don't know that he's also using it nine times to apply to mere men. Once you know the whole picture, the whole story, then, then it becomes very different. Then the argument disappears. Then what else? Well, they would say that 91% of Mark is in Matthew, 55% is in Luke. But do you think that's a good argument? Well, no, because they could have just witnessed the same events. Well, exactly. Anytime books are covering the same material, one of them, necessarily, if they have three different accounts of the same material, unless they all agree to the exact same word count or page count in their writing up, one of them is going to be longer than, than the others, and one of them is going to be shorter than the others. And the shortest one is going to have the least material, and the longer ones will have more material. That, that's just trivial. That's obvious. Right? So this is not an argument at all. Then they would say that, well, look, there are places where Matthew and Mark, when they're using particular wording 
or, or chronology, there are places where Matthew and Mark agree, but Luke differs. And there are places where Luke and Mark agree and Matthew differs. Well, are but, there any places where Matthew and Luke agree and Mark differs? There are no differs? places where Matthew and Luke agree against against Mark. So I say the only way this could happen is if they're both using Mark independently. And that argument carried weight for a while until another scholar pointed out that this is what's called Lockman's fallacy. It simply means that Mark has to be the middle term between Matthew and Luke. What do you mean by the middle term? In other words, suppose Matthew wrote first, then Mark wrote, and Mark, where he, he followed Matthew's order usually, sometimes he deviated from it, and then along comes Luke, and Luke has Matthew and Mark in front of him. So anytime he sees Matthew and Mark agree, he, he will put the same thing. Where he sees them differ, sometimes he'll go with Matthew, sometimes he'll go with Mark, and you'll see the exact same phenomenon then. Well, that may debunk this argument, but it still makes it sound like they're copying off each other, like there's literary dependence. Yeah, if, but again, we're overlooking here the fact of all those verbal dissimilarities that they don't talk about. Literary dependence, we've already shown, is, is not a good argument. But as the Bible says, answer a fool according to his folly. If they're going to assume there's literary dependence and they're going to assume that Mark is first, you can show using their own presuppositions that their conclusion doesn't follow. And that's a perfectly legitimate way to argue. Oh, yeah, just, just like when you argue against evolution, you can use outside arguments like the laws of science, like biogenesis and thermodynamics, or you can actually go inside their own theory to show that it's inconsistent, like survival of, well, like why they would develop traits that don't have a survival advantage and so on. Yeah, sir, certainly you can do that. And and that's, again, let's assume your argument is correct. Let's see if, if your conclusions come from it. In the case of evolution, for example, they can take a, a plot of woodland and they find some birds there that have very drab coloration and some that are very bright. And then you ask, okay, well, why, why did these ones evolve to be drab in coloration? And they say, well, it helps them to, to disguise themselves, camouflage, so the predators can't see them. Well, the, well what about the bright ones? I and mean, predators will see them and say, well, they evolved that for sexual selection. The, the bright plumage attracts the females. And you see, you see when you look at that, look, if you have a theory that can explain the exact opposite phenomenon, when you're saying survival of the fittest, and the exact opposite can both be said to be the most fit, your theory is not going to work. It, it, it just becomes farcical. So that's what we're doing here. So let's assume there's literary dependence and show that your conclusion of market party still doesn't work. Then, of course, there's the problem that, that there are agreements. There are agreements between Matthew and Luke against Mark. And they try to write them off as, as minor agreements, but they're, they're not necessarily that minor. One commentator pointed out that certain Andreas Enulat suggests more than a thousand places in which Matthew and Luke agree against Mark in either common addition or common omission. And the minor agreements, they're not so minor as some would have it. They're frequently used exactly as evidence against this two-source hypothesis. Because there are some scholars, a minority of them, but there are some who, who, who do not accept this idea that Matthew and Luke copied from Mark and Q. Now, interestingly, those who want to 
defend this two-source hypothesis and want to say that, that yeah, Matthew Lund copied from Mark and Q, and they see these differences, how do they deal with them? Well, they would appeal to something called scribal harmonization based on a lost original. The influence of oral tradition, where, of course, it's oral, so we have no record of it, so you don't know what it said. A possibility of Mark-Q overlap, but to account for all these, these agreements of Matthew and Luke, the number of agreements is so great that Q starts to look more and more like the Gospel of Matthew. Some of them will even appeal to multiple editions of the Gospels. So, so they're basically making up a whole bunch of imaginary Gospels. We're back to a bunch of unicorns again. Completely non-existent, fictitious suppositions. It's, 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 it's just like you're, you're on trial for murder, and the prosecution has six eyewitnesses, and they have guns, and that was used to commit the murder and your fingerprints are on it. And your lawyer would argue, well, but that doesn't prove he's guilty because, you know, perhaps all these people are lying or perhaps they're all influenced by an alien abduction that put this idea into their heads and the fingerprints just, you know, somehow natural forces just happened. Yeah, it's unlikely, but just happened to etch those, those very marks on that. If you're just going to go with supposition and conjecture, that's not going to stand against the real evidence. The real evidence is that Matthew and Luke frequently agree against Mark. And to try to explain that away by making stuff up that you can't prove, the stuff for which there's no evidence, really kind of shows you're not going where the evidence leads. You have made up your mind first, and now you're trying to make the evidence say what you wanted to say. Thank you, everyone, for listening today. Unfortunately, we have run out of time. But please join us for the next part. Same time and same place. Thank you for listening to the Truth In My Days podcast with John Torse. If you like our content, please share this information with family and friends. It helps us a lot. We also would love to hear from you. You can reach us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube by searching Truth In My Days as one word again. Truth In My Days as one word. No spaces in between. Or... Reach us by email at info at truthinmydays.com. You may also visit our website for more comprehensive material and to learn more about our ministry. Our website is truthinmydays.com. Thank you. <laughs>